You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this June 29th edition of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For Real Vision, I'm Max Wheatley, sitting in today for Ash Bennington, who's busy over at our first ever virtual event, the Crypto Gathering. I'm joined today by Ed Harrison, and we don't have an intro today, so I'm just going to pass the ball off to you, Ed. What is it that you are looking at on June 29th? Yeah, what I'm looking at is a continued volatility in markets, sort of directionless in terms of you know whether it's up or down. We saw down on Friday up today and what's causing that you know we had the reopening rally and that reopening rally seems to have stalled a bit now and there's a lot of debate about uh you know where things are headed and i think a lot of that has to do with the increase in coronavirus cases that we have i had two charts in particular that i saw today that i thought were pretty interesting on that count the one was uh, comparing the United States to various other countries. It showed, you know, if you looked at infection rates per million, what the United States looked like, what Europe looked like, what Japan looked like, what Canada looked like. And the U.S. looked worse than the other countries. It looked actually all three countries from the West uh, looked relatively poor in the first wave. But as the first wave progressed, uh, Canada and Europe, their counts went down, whereas the United States stayed high and then recently have gone up. Then the other thing that I thought was very interesting was a chart for the United States, which compared various states. You saw New York and the way that it went up very high early on and, and then came down. And then some other states like Arizona and Florida, Texas, which have gone up recently, never to the levels in terms of the overall case count that you saw in New York. So, I mean, for me, the takeaway is that it's it's probably not going to be as bad in terms of case counts, in terms of hospitalizations, in terms of deaths in the United States as it was when we first had the coronavirus waves. But and, and you know, by the way, that means no shutdown, obviously. And ir irrespective of you know how bad it gets, I I don't think you'd have a shutdown uh, myself. But irrespective of that, I think that there is going to be an impact. The numbers look bad enough that we're already seeing high frequency data out of Namura, which says that yes, uh, the impact has already begun in the United States, and that impact is going to be more than it is in other countries. And the takeaway for me, you know, as I was reading the news, the Ireland came out today, they opened up their pubs. The United States basically opened up very early and uh, didn't have the right protocols in place to deal with that. And as a result, case counts went up. And I think that you're going to see sort of a social distancing, a, a consumer behavior chill as a result of that. So how much of it is policy related? How much of it is just the nature of the U.S. versus Europe, and this was going to happen no matter what. Um, and then as well, though, one of the things that I thought was really interesting before this is some of the research said that 
this is going to happen. You are going to see reopening and closing, reopening and closing. And that, in fact, that that actually would get us through this faster because you build up some immunity. People are exposed. You get to the point where you're not exactly you know, overrunning the hospitals, but it's getting close and, and you then are cautious and you close things down. Is this sort of going to plan, would you say, or is this, are we off the reservation? We're off the reservation. The United States is definitely off the reservation. You know, I think that most countries, what they are looking to do is they're looking to replicate what Sweden had from the get go. You know, you can say positive or negative negative things about Sweden and having not shut down in the beginning, but over the longer period of time, if you're not going to have a vaccine and you're not going to get herd immunity right in the beginning, you want the economy to be as open as possible within the uh, the confines of social distancing, testing protocols, and uh, contact tracing. And, you know, that's what we see in Sweden. So the question is, how do you get to that level? How can you make it so that your society uh, you know, has enough trust in government to believe, yes, we're going to wear masks or not wear masks in, in certain situations. These situations are safe. These are not safe. And in a way that allows you to continue to have a, a normal sort of development of, of social and economic interaction over time. So what we've seen in the United States is we haven't done that. We haven't been able to do that because, you know, when you are doing a reopening, you have to dial back the reopening as we're doing in Texas and in Florida and some other places. That's a clear sign that, uh, you know, we're off the reservation, as you put it. And and so I think that it that has negative consequences from an economic perspective and from a social perspective. All right. Well, this is a narrative that I think pretty much everybody was aware was a a possibility that a second wave could come um, and that it would probably not happen in New York. It would happen in in the South. It would happen in the Midwest and, and some of these secondary and tertiary cities. Um, so it's not a surprise to the market. How much is the second wave priced in, do you think? And at what point, as the, second, as the data continues to come out, will it become a serious problem? Yeah, I don't think that the level of uh, spike is was priced in. So it is a surprise to the market that we're seeing the case counts in the United States as high as they are, that they've remained high and then they've actually accelerated. Then the question is, is what kind of behavior are we going to get? What kind of consumer behavior? What kind of business behavior? Are you know our business going to shut down? Uh, I used an example when I was talking to Ash a week ago about Tyson Foods being sued by people who are the relatives of employees who died. And those employees uh, died according to their relatives because Tyson was negligent. Uh, you know, businesses want to protect themselves against that kind of action. So the, the real question is, is what kind of impact will it have economically? And then how will that affect earnings? I think that, you know, you're never going to have another total shutdown of the entire Western economy. So you're never going to see an impact the way that you did in the first time. The real problem is the breaking point for companies, the likes of Chesapeake Energy uh, going bankrupt today. You know, balance sheets are under stress in the private sector, both households and businesses. Uh, they need one. They do not need one more, uh, you know, ca uh, straw on the camel's back in order to have that break. So I think that. We're, we are sort of at a breaking point, but it's not necessarily the case that it's going to precipitate a cascade of, of events. I do think that markets are not priced 
for the level of disruption that we're likely to get given some of the high frequency data that's come out uh, recently. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, and then when markets, if and when markets do reprice, what do you think the nature of that will be relative to, say, you know, a sort of flash crash like we saw in early March? Is this going to be the slow grind that a lot of people have been expecting, either just choppiness or a slow grind lower? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a uh, a good question. It depends upon you know the nature of the 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 economic fallout uh, and what sort of repricing that has for earnings. For me, earnings for 2021, which is probably September, October timeframe, that's when you start to see visibility going forward because the reopening will have happened long enough. And then you have to ask yourself, these secondary and tertiary cities that you're talking about, what sort of an impact are they going to have on earnings? If you're talking about the S&P 500 versus the Russell 2000, what sort of impact are they going to have on earnings for companies that are very global versus companies that are, are U.S. domestic based? And where are the markets that that companies that are most uh, exposed are uh, most prevalent in? Uh, you can think of companies like high yield companies, uh, companies that are getting leveraged loans as being the weakest credits. So, I, you know, as a as sort of more credit guy, I'm much more concerned about those companies uh, than I am about um, companies in uh, in sort of the S&P 500 universe uh, equities. The the interesting bit is actually if the Fed doesn't step in, if we don't, if we have a slow grind, it's actually worse on some on some level for uh, high yield companies because what it means is is that you have default rates going up uh, without any sort of intervention. If you have a sudden whammy, then so the the Fed might be might feel that they need to intervene in some capacity to eliminate uh, tail risk. But if it's a slow grind, you're not going to get that level of tail risk, and as a result, the Fed wouldn't intervene, and you would see these bankruptcies. For instance, because Chesapeake went bankrupt, I think I saw the figure that 119 companies have gone bankrupt uh, in the United States uh, that are listed, and this is more in the first five months. Uh, actually, this this was data through May, not including Chesapeake. In the first five months of 2020, uh, that uh, compared to what we had in all of 2019. So we're already on a course for a doubling or more of bankruptcies. Uh, if you go over the edge, it could be even more. And one of the other things I think is very interesting, I was talking to Charlie McElligot, who I'm trying to get on, as you know, to yeah. uh, to talk to us about, you know, what's the political connection? And we were talking about uh, the the ability for Donald Trump to get stimulus through. You know, will Nancy Pelosi... Uh, be able, you know, allow the Republicans to uh, to put out a bill that doesn't have all sorts of sweeteners in it uh, for the Green New Deal and things of that nature that he might be opposed to in normal times, but is desperate to get out. Uh, what 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 kind of deal would he be able to get at all uh, in this kind of environment? Are you going to see things like uh, the uh, mortgage uh, relief? Uh, kick down the road? Are we going to get the J July expiry 
of unemployment, the enhanced unemployment insurance, things of that nature are all going to be happening at the same time that we are going to be seeing this, uh, uh, the reopening downturn, if you will, uh, kick in. And also you have the 2021 earnings outlook coming out. So that September, October is time frame is going to be very key in terms of what the political aspect of all this is going to be. Now, when you talked about the uh, unemployment insurance enhanced benefits rolling off, that brought up a really interesting chart that I saw this morning on Twitter from Joe Weisenthal, where it showed uh, the total compensation plus unemployment benefits. And if you just look on that chart, looking back at 2008, uh, we actually came up a little bit even through most of 2008, and then we saw ourselves come down. And it was years years before we were back at the at the peak level sort of right now if you look at the chart uh we went straight down i mean it was it was a massive decline it nothing on the chart looks anything like it but then we shot right, right back up and we're actually at a faster trajectory right now than we were um even before any of this happened so it, it seems to me that that the nature of that stimulus is perhaps much more powerful than than any of the other stimulus that's going on. And when you said the Fed stepping in to to backstop high yield, it didn't make sense to me that mechanism and how that would prevent prevent bankruptcies. How does supporting asset prices prevent bankruptcies? Not personal bankruptcies, but actual bankruptcies within the corporate sector, certainly. You know, uh, if you have liquidity for companies in high yield, then that means that other high yield debtors can issue uh, without uh, thinking that no one wants to buy their their debt. That means that spreads to investment grade or treasuries are lower than they otherwise might be, whereas they might gap out. You know, for instance, I remember in high yield when you had the um, the LTCM crisis. There was no trading whatsoever that happened at that particular time. In 2007, same thing. 2008, you know, spreads went through the roof. The, uh, no trading. Companies that wanted to go to market who were lower rated, triple C, B minus, they couldn't come to market. Uh, they potentially went bankrupt as a result of that. So it's not actually that those companies are being backstopped by the Fed and that's fixing the cash flow problem. It's just their ability to... I, to paper over their problems with with increased issuance. Yeah, so I'm thinking of it as a classic liquidity crisis. This is what the Fed would say. The Fed would say we're not uh, solving solvency problems. That's why we're only invested in at first uh, treasuries. Now, uh, you know, when we saw the IG market fall apart, we went into IG for liquidity reasons. We're not going in there to save companies. We're trying to, uh, you know, uh, give liquidity where liquidity wasn't apparent before, and that's that's our sole purpose here. It's not to backstop companies uh, that should otherwise go bankrupt. If they were to go into junk more, uh, you know, more, they would do so only as a result of the liquidity problem. That's why I said the slow grind is actually worse for high yield because you wouldn't get a Fed backstop because there what wouldn't be liquidity problem. It would just be that these companies would would go to the wall. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So if we do have this sort of choppy market, uh, at least out until September, do we have a little bit more clarity? What should investors or traders be doing? I mean, should they be playing these ups and downs? What do you do in that period of time? Yeah, just, I, I think that's yeah, my favorite. I'm not going to I don't think I'm going to go there in terms of uh, giving people investment advice. 
But what I would say is, is, is that it's a very difficult time. I mean, if you think that you can outperform uh, the uh, uh, passive investors, uh, you know, if you can outperform the ETFs, then more power to you in a market like the market that we have now. That's the, 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 the real problem. When there's choppiness in the market, it's very difficult, therefore, to, uh, to be able to outperform. And I think that, you know, you have to wait uh, for ideas to, uh, to, to become relative value uh, ready. And I think that in this particular juncture, when you have this sort of choppiness up and down, uh, trading in and out will be very difficult for, for investors to, uh, to outperform. That's, that's what I would say. Okay. Well, I think we are going to have somebody on on Wednesday. You're going to be talking to Mark Ritchie, who is, I think, really the perfect person for this type of market. His time frame is much shorter. He is truly tactical in every sense of the word. He doesn't care what asset class it is. As long as he thinks he can make money, he, he's going to give it a shot. So I'm looking forward to that discussion. And let me just say that, you know, he's talking from the bullish side. I already spoke to him earlier today, or we traded emails. We, we didn't speak. And he said, you know, I, I'm uh, you know, I don't I want to warn you already. I'm I'm constructive on the market as it, it stands today. I said, you know, great, because we need more bulls. We need to have, uh, you know, to see both sides of the coin. And I think that'll be that'll be very positive. Well, I think you're pretty capable of opening up your mind to both sides. And having read your, your work, I think you are cautious. Uh, would be the right way to put it. Let's say that you were entertaining the bull case, though. What what would you say? Pretend Ed Harrison is a bull. What are the things that you're looking at that, that would make you bullish? I think what would make me bullish is the ability for uh, the uh, policy to uh, to paper over the cracks long enough for the economy to get back on track. And also the willingness for policymakers to continue to do that while the economy moves back up. So I'm not expecting a V-shaped recovery per se, but you know this whole um, um, backwards or reverse radical that people talk about, where you have a huge drop down that you talked about, a snap back up in terms of output, and then a grind upward. Now that grind upward, you know, what's the slope of that grind? That, that the slope of that grind is very much dependent upon the environment. So I would be, if you could show me that that slope upward is 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 uh, high, then I, I would be constructive on uh, what we're seeing. A perfect example of this is when you look at, um, at precautionary savings, the savings rates associated with those numbers that you put out uh, with regard to the drop and then the increase it is massive. You know, we're talking 30 uh, uh, percent personal um, uh, savings. You want to see those numbers go way down. Uh, or, uh, and if they can go down, then that's positive for for output. It's positive also for companies who are thinking to themselves, we want to build inventories. Uh, we're willing to put out for CapEx and things of that nature. So it's all data dependent. When, and I think that for me, it's about the consumption. Once we get past this, this initial period, we went through the lockdown, we went through the reopening. Now the reopening is solid and we're really in it. And all of the, uh, the high frequency data is showing a normalization of consumption patterns. You know, there, there are going to be some changes in terms of, you know, people will use Amazon more, they'll use contactless payment more, but a resumption in terms of the, the magnitude, to me, that would be bullish. Okay. 
Now, I guess my question is how, what economic data is, is the most important ec- economic data to watch? Because clearly unemployment hasn't picked back up in a V-shaped way, but we have these new protections. How does this change in the policy stance actually change what economic data is important? I mean, people have more money in their pockets. Companies aren't as healthy. The economy in the sense, if you were to ask somebody in 2008, isn't as healthy, but people have more money in their pockets than they did before this crisis. How much does that actually shift what is important versus isn't important to be paying attention to anymore? It's funny when you ask that question, my knee-jerk reaction is jobless claims. Uh, but you know, even when I think about it in more detail, I think jobless claims again. And you know, that's both initial and continuing claims because when you said unemployment, you, you went on and you were talking yeah. about unemployment. You know, If you compare a, a, a situation where you have 85% of the people employed and 15% receiving uh, extra help to get them to the levels of uh, income that they had before versus a, a situation where 100% of the people are getting you know, what they had before. Obviously, you prefer situation number two to situation number one. So for me, the first uh, thing that I'd like to see is uh, jobless claims go down. Uh, to give you a perfect example, the last number for jobless claims that we had was, I think, 1.4 million. This was less than expected. But 1.4 million in a week is double and sometimes triple the the even highest levels that we had in the great financial crisis. So here we are three months into uh, a, a, um, a recovery or a shutdown and then recovery and we're still getting levels of jobless claims that are unprecedented in any other um, recession since jobless claim data tracking began in 1967. But to me, you can't have any sort of meaningful recovery when that's going on, because that means that the economy is hemorrhaging jobs. And you can't have a roll-off in terms of uh, fiscal support when you're hemorrhaging jobs of that that level. Okay, so things are are looking, you know, not good in the U.S. and in Europe, though, it appears as though maybe we're seeing a bit of a turnaround. Um, I wanted to change this now to to talk a little bit about U.S. outperformance. You mentioned before a lot of the multinationals, you know, they get so much of their revenues from from overseas anyway, and so the S and P rallying isn't really reflective of the health of the U.S. economy as much as it is the global economy. What do you think about this as as maybe the, the death knell for for U.S. outperformance? Yeah, you were telling me that you were uh, uh, asking about that before, and I think that you know it's a hard question uh, to answer, uh, in particular because of the depth of the United States in terms of its financial markets, uh, because of the bid of the U.S. dollar, and uh, and and the importance of the dollar uh, component of that, the currency component, in terms of how you think about this going forward. And then finally, of course, you talked about the S&P 500 being more uh, multinational, global in nature versus a pure domestic play where, you know, the Russell 2000 would be a, a pure domestic play. Um, so even if, I mean, when you think about multiples, you know, PE multiples, there I've had multiple discussions about that with regard to why is it that the multiple in Europe is lower than it is in the United States, and then it's even lower in Japan. David Rosenberg, as an example, 
he uh, talked to me about uh, Japan, their multiples being so low that, that, that they were ready, even though growth wasn't going to be spectacular in Japan, you know, on a relative value basis, that market was worth more. Last summer, I spoke to a guy, a German called Philip von Dran, and he was saying that actually when you adjust for the composition of the markets, the, there's no difference between the two. If you take a look at the United States and Europe, uh, because we have, we're over allocated for industrials, because we're under allocated for technology, if you reweight, really the PE ratios are the same, and therefore I don't see any difference in terms of you know where I should be investing my money. When I look globally, I, uh, th there's there's nothing about Europe that makes me more excited. So those are the kinds of things I think if you're looking at a medium or long term perspective, you still have to take into account. But you know from the short to medium term, from an economic perspective, I think you can definitely make the case that Europe will outperform. Just using Ireland as a as a, an example, you know, with the pubs opening up, they opened up their pubs later. Uh, you know, I think that uh, the, the case counts are going to continue to stay low there. I, you know, their their economy is going to continue to rise, whereas in the United States, I think it's still a bit of a a, a question mark as to whether or not you're going to get a W type of of outcome. Well, that actually leads us into the questions about the rotation trade. So you could argue today might have been the first day of a rotation into away from tech, into industrials, maybe even looking into some other markets outside of the U.S. or just not at, at the mega caps. Um, what do you think about this idea that that what we saw a few weeks ago was a rotation trade and that we could see more of those going forward? I mean, it was really only like 10 days of of those kind of neglected laggards um, picking themselves up and, and catching up a little bit with the NASDAQ. And they didn't even really catch up. They just outperformed for a few days. Do you think that we're going to see any more of these sorts of rotation bursts? And would you even call it a rotation? Yeah, I think we could see more rotation bursts as the market starts to digest uh, whether or not this is a, a U, you know, a reverse radical or W type of recovery. Because at the end of the day, that's going to be very important in terms of how cyclicals work versus how, uh, you know, uh, uh, technology companies work. You know, if you're invested in a chemical company or a bank and you're late cycle versus you're about to double dip, that's a huge difference. And when we look at Lael Brainerd as an example, uh, saying uh, a pushback against her other governors, she's saying, do not give these banks uh, a chance to pay out uh, their their capital because they're going to need the capital in case essentially we double dip. I mean, that's that you know that's the the parenthetical to how she's presenting that. That's not good for for banks. It's not good, especially I think for uh, you know regional banks and smaller banks because those are banks that are more exposed to the small and medium sized companies that are going to suffer the most in in a, another cyclical downturn. So I think that we're still sort of, uh, you know, kind of rotating through to try to figure out what's happening. Uh, the, the, the mad rush reopening uh, was positive for, you know, if you think that we're at the beginning of a new bull market, but that's sort of losing its appeal. And now people are wondering, is that narrative the correct narrative uh, to play going forward? I personally, I have great doubts about that narrative, but I still am open to the concept that 
yes, uh, we could be off to the races with enough, uh, with enough uh, fiscal and monetary support. Hey, let me let me ask you something here, Max. Uh, actually, a, a number of different things. And by the way, good choice on the on the shirt color there with the black. I'm 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 backing it. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. You know, uh, we're talking about markets, and uh, and I know that you've been um, looking at a lot of the content that we have that's market oriented. The piece that came out today, you were looking at that piece. Uh, you were um, responsible for editing it and bringing it out. It's not, you know, lighting up the storms on on the on the uh, on the platform. Talk to me about that piece. Why you think it's good? Why you think it's bad? Underperforming. Uh, what value it adds. Uh, you know, these are the kinds of conversations we have behind the scenes. I kind of want to bring it out into the open. Okay. Well, so, you know, as you know, uh, Ed, not maybe not all of the viewers, there's always a member of the editorial team who is involved in every piece of content, whether it's the um, person actually doing the interview, like when you sit down with somebody tomorrow, I have an interview going out that I'm very proud of. I don't get to do as many on camera pieces. I'm usually behind the scenes, uh, like I was with today's piece with, with Brett Friedman and Michael Miller and they're, they're risk, they're risk guys. And we've had, we've had, um, risk managers on before. It's not something that we have on all the time. Um, and, and when you say just, risk guys, what do you mean by that? Well, like we've had, they are not traders. They're not trading. What they do professionally is they're risk managers and they're third-party risk managers for people. And a lot of, um, one of the things they do is they do post-mortems of trades. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people should be doing right now, especially as we're seeing this increased volatility. You can have a trade that goes wrong, goes against you, and and you might think you're the you're the dumbest trader or investor in the world, or or even worse, you can have a trade go right for you, and it makes you think you're a genius, and you can give back everything and more on that sort of thing. And and I just think that there are some pieces of content that don't give you a view on an asset class. They don't give you a view on where exactly the market is at any moment in time, but they're process oriented. And this is a process oriented piece. And what they were really looking at was fund failures. And, you know, a lot of our investors are individual investors. Their fund isn't going to fail, but it matters when you take losses. And sometimes it matters even when you have gains to, to take a, an unbiased look back at what you did and say, did I make money because I was lucky? Did I make money because I was right? Did I, did I make money? I should never do that again. And thank God I made money on it. Uh, but I should never do that again. And I thought that this piece really looked at that. And, and we're coming from a period where, um, where I think that there were a ton of different funds. They looked at AIMCO, which is a pension up in Canada uh, that had it was a 1.2 billion dollar Canadian loss relative to 120 billion dollar fund. Not anything huge, but the fact of the matter is that do you think any of the? Well, they talked about this in the piece, Brett and Michael. So I don't think that I'm some sort of genius for bringing this out. Um, but they talked about you know, do you think any one of those pensioners could have said, "I see you guys are are trading uncapped variant swaps. I don't think that that's suitable for our pension." Um, <laughs> Nobody, nobody could have done that. And if, if a pensioner can't say that's suitable or not suitable for them because you are investing their money, is it suitable for you? Even if the fund managers are ex-Goldman guys who have been trading variant swaps for 20 years, if it's not 
right for the client. If the client can't understand what they're doing and they don't really have any choice in that, is it right for the fund? And, th and then they discuss it relative to hedge funds because they talked about a, a fund Malachi Capital that, that blew up that they were, yeah, they blew up, but you know, they're a hedge fund and everybody who is invested with them knows exactly what they're getting into. And, it, and it's fine. That's part of the business is that there will be blow ups. Um, but when these blow ups happen, if you survived it, maybe as a fund or as an institutional investor, it's worthwhile to take a look back at what you did and see whether you were crossing a, a, a very dangerous road and you just happened to get across because you were lucky or, or were, you, were you prepared for this crisis? Were you in the right position before your portfolio? And so it's not something that we do all the time at Real Vision, but looking back, is is healthy and and it's important for investors to do as well i thought it was a pro level piece we do content here that is sometimes not always for the retail investor and as somebody who is participating in the booking process i'm just going to tell our viewers that you know if you have a hundred thousand dollars and you trade etfs yeah, there are a couple of trading platforms that we bring on but they're not really interested in reaching you they're interested in reaching our buy side um, and, and some of the other professional investors that we have on. And that's who I, I have to go out and bring these people on. I tell them about that group of people. And that group of people is more interested sometimes in this more sophisticated content. And so I look at Real Vision as being a, uh, it's a complex ecosystem with animals at different levels of the food chain. And if we were to focus exclusively on the retail crowd, we would lose those professionals. And then the people who we book who are interested in reaching those professionals would not want to come on and thus the retail crowd would lose. So it's a delicate balance of an ecosystem that we have here at Real Vision. Um, and, and maybe this was for the apex predators, uh, so to speak. And very, very interesting. Yeah, you, see, you talk very passionately about that. And by the way, when you do, it reminds me to a degree about the... American companies, CalPERS in particular, which are now looking to imitate their Canadian brethren. And now I'm not talking necessarily about selling volatility or whatever AIMCO was doing that lost them $1.2 billion, but I'm talking about a lot of the tricks of the trade, in particular getting into private uh, equity, getting into uh, you know private investing. Uh, CalPERS talked about that, increasing leverage using their balance sheet to uh, to increase leverage to get out performance and so forth. And to me, these are the kinds of issues, systemic issues that we have to be thinking about when we look at the economy as a whole. Are these the types of things that we want to have happen? And to the degree that we don't, who's the, who's the right decision maker on those uh, particular uh, decisions? You know, the Lael Brainerd um, uh, entreaty there to stop the companies from giving out their dividends, is that what we want? Uh, you know, Chris Whalen would tell you, no, it's not. But uh, she's telling you that the Fed has a role in terms of safeguarding the system to take precautions when you think that precautions are necessary, like now. Oh, yeah. And we have content on all the time that isn't particularly actionable. What, like, I love Lacey Hunt just as much as the next guy, but is the Fed acting or thinking in the same way as Lacey Hunt at all? I don't really I don't really think so. And it's great to hear a refreshing perspective, but how actionable is that 
is his views on what central banks should be doing relative to maybe a piece on MMT or something like that, which is applicable to the actual policy that's coming down. Whether you agree with it or not, this stuff is happening and and we are going to talk about it. So I look at some content that we do as as bias confirming. I look at some content that we do as bias non-confirming. And uh, this piece was probably neither because I don't think a lot of people have a lot of biases about capped versus non-capped variant swaps. Um, <laughs> if you do, you're, you are one of those pros that I'm talking about. If you're worried about biases for, for variant swaps, then, then you're at a, a higher level than I'm at. But let, me, let me ask you another question here before we run out of time. Uh, it's about um, the, uh, you know, uh, July the 4th. Um, and uh, you as the host, what, what are we going to be doing on July the 4th? Yes. So this Friday is July the 3rd is the official observation day of Independence Day, the 4th of July here in the United States. Markets are closed as well. Our New York office is closed where most of the people who who make the RV daily briefing happen are located. And so to, to make sure that we get you something on that day, what we're going to do is an ask me anything. Um, and that is going to be pre-recorded, So it won't be as of that day. Uh, but an email should be going out today telling you where you can send your questions for, I believe it's going to be you and Roger and Ash um, doing sort of a roundtable discussion, taking questions. I'd like to let everybody know we, we do have tons of subscribers. So the idea that we're going to get to every question is just not possible. So if we don't get to your question, um, you know, write a better one next time. Um, <laughs> and you're saying uh, put the questions into the uh, RVDB or is it in uh, in reply to the email? I would reply to the email. Uh, we we are going to go through the, the comments section. I know today for this episode to look at them, but the email is the best way to go. Um, that way they're all going to the same place. Um, and I think we're probably going to record that on Wednesday. So as well, if you are going to ask a question about daily price action, it's probably not the the best type of question to ask because it's going to be recorded on Wednesday and it's going to go out on Friday. Um, so keep your questions more medium to long term. And uh, maybe I'll try and squeeze one in. And hopefully, uh, maybe not. I'll steal a spot from one of the viewers. But um, I'm looking forward to that one as well. Excellent. And Max, let me just say that it has been a pleasure talking to you, having you be the host. Uh, it's good to mix it up. You know, sometimes we've had people from outside uh, um, Real Vision. I think we're going to have Dave Floyd tomorrow. But, you know, it's good uh, to have you in the driver's seat and uh, hope to have you uh, do this uh, again more in the future. Well, it's a pleasure. If anybody wants more of me, I, I spend most of my time over on Real Vision Live. So a little plug there for the plus tier. And yeah, it was great talking to you. I'm not you know, watching the markets as much every day because I'm, I'm working on content so much, trying to bring great stuff to you guys. But it was a lot of fun, Ed. I appreciate it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.